Today on Not Sam Wrestling, we lost a legend. Will we get a new one? The Iron Sheik passes away. Amanda Nunes retires from the UFC. Money in the Bank is filling out, as is Forbidden Door. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Hey, 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 4.51. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hope it was a good weekend. Lots to talk about today. <clears throat> Here we go. Here we go. Yes. Oh, boy. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Uh, big episode to get into today. Lots to talk about. Thank you all for being here. Hope you're all subscribed. Hope you're all uh, ratings and commenting and liking and doing everything Black Mirror has told you not to do. Welcome to the show. Uh, I think that the only place that we can possibly start this week is by talking about the legend that we lost over the week. Rest in peace to the Iron Sheik, who at a reported 81 years old, although if you ask the great Keith Elliott Greenberg, who I believe wrote the Iron Sheik's biography that never came out, uh, he would tell you that the Iron Sheik was never fully concrete on exactly when his birthday was, but 81 is, a, is, a, is about right. Uh, we lost him and... He's one of these legends that I'm so glad his legend was able to grow over the years. And as just this character meant so much to so many people. And that's the thing that pro wrestling can do. It can, it, it blurs that line. That suspension of disbelief can just continue to expand and, and exist in ways that no other form of entertainment can give us where this this character from your childhood can just continue to exist all these years later and it's it's really interesting i talked about it a little bit on the radio but when you look at at the iron sheik so many of us as, as children this was the prototypical villain there was nobody more built to loathe than the Iron Sheik. He just, whether it was in wrestling or anywhere else, he represented what the bad guy was. He was what you boo. And going forward as an adult, and maybe it's because we enjoyed the evolution of who he was uh, 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 publicly, and maybe it's because we look at him with this reverence for the way that he made us feel as kids about our heroes, but he couldn't have been more beloved by this and a great many more entire generations. Uh, I was uh, super thrilled earlier this year to be a part of the Iron Sheik's A&E documentary where they kind of went over his life and his career. And really this, this, this super interesting thing that the Iron Sheik, one of the most memorable and iconic characters ever in wrestling started out as a man who didn't really have a wrestling character, a guy who 
was a great athlete. He was a, he was legit one of the coaches of the, believe it or not, the U.S. Olympic wrestling team. But he came in uh, to the world of professional wrestling. Handsome guy, full head of hair, in amazing shape. All natural, by the way, and just a, a, a humble man who wanted to get by and, and achieve the American dream as an Iranian through hard work. And he wasn't making money. He wasn't really getting over. And so this character, along this was in the AWA, Vern Gagne uh, helped the Iron Sheik establish this character. You know, the Sheik had already been successful in wrestling. The Iron Sheik was 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 like that with a with a twist on it. You know, it really tapped in to being from Iran, and he and he shaved his head and he grew that handlebar mustache. And most importantly, added hooks to the end of his boots. That means one thing. I mean, and, and, and you talk about iconic imagery. All of it, right? The shaved head, essential. The handlebar mustache. All you need is an outline of the handlebar mustache. And you know exactly who you're talking about. The hooked boots. When Xavier Woods came to the ring with hooked boots on, you knew he was paying homage to the legend, Bubba. The Iron Sheik uh, would wrestle all over the place. He'd be in the AWA. He'd wrestle all throughout the territories. He'd be all over the place. He had a, a stint in WWWF, but really, you know, a few years into his run as the Iron Sheik is when it took off, when, when Vince McMahon Jr. brought him in. And Vince had this idea for what professional wrestling could be and the the globalization, for lack of a better term, of the product. The, the fact that this is a product that could hit everywhere. Forget about a territory. Forget, I mean, at the time, it was like going nationwide was even frowned upon. He said, no, worldwide. We can create iconic properties, characters that the whole world can relate to with the advent of cable television, with the fact that this stuff is going everywhere. And he said, you know, that he wants to, he wanted to, to, to base the company around a superhero, a good guy, right? And Bob Backlund was the champion at the time. He had been the champion for four years. He had never been beaten cleanly, to my knowledge. Not in Madison Square Garden anyway. And Vince McMahon realizes that Hulk Hogan is the guy that he wants to position as Mr. Wrestling, for lack of a better term. There already was a Mr. Wrestling. But but he wants Hulk Hogan to be his Superman. He wants Hulk Hogan to be his He-Man. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Hogan already looked like He-Man. But you can't have Hogan beat Backlund. Not at that time. That would be like having Superman beat Batman when Superman was just being introduced to the audience. The audience doesn't want to see Batman lose. No, 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 no. So they realized they needed a supervillain. And the Iran hostage situation was happening. That political event that had the whole world glued to their TV sets for months was what really made them put the pedal to the metal with this Iron Sheik character. Not only was he now embracing the fact that he was from Iran, but he was literally coming to the ring with an Iranian flag that had the Ayatollah's face airbrushed on it. 
I mean, you want to talk about nuclear heat. This is a guy who was an Olympic athlete who just at first believed in hard work and discipline and is now so aware of the business and so most, most importantly, unafraid of heat. Heat is a scary thing. A lot of people historically have not been ready for that kind of heat. The Iron Sheik was not one of those guys. He said, this is the role, we're making money, this is the role. And he went to Madison Square Garden representing everything that that crowd hated. And he beat Bob Backlund when he put Bob Backlund in the camel clutch and Arnold Skolin threw the towel in. Bob never submitted. And this would get paid off several years later. I'm talking about like 93, 93, 94, when Bob Backlund not only returned, but turned heel because he had gone crazy because he had never actually tapped out to the Iron Sheik's camel clutch in 1984. But the Iron Sheik did the unthinkable. This was some, I mean, I guess it wasn't the unthinkable if you'd really paid attention. It, it kind of similarly happened to Bruno San Martino, but the Iron Sheik beat Bob Backlund. Nobody thought it was going to happen in Madison Square Garden. And the announcement gets made that there's going to be a rematch, right? In January, there's going to be a rematch. January 1985, Bob Backlund versus the Iron Sheik. Bob Backlund says, no, 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 no. The Iron Sheik injured me. I'm not going to be able to compete in Madison Square Garden, but I have a replacement. He introduces Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan acts as the Iron Sheik's replacement. And well, history gets made. Immediately after the Iron Sheik wins the title from Bob Backlund, we start seeing superstars defect from territories. We start seeing superstars that were supposed to be uh, wrestling for other promoters, just letting them know they're not gonna be wrestling for other promoters. Hogan being one of them. Hogan just letting the AWA know, hey brother, I'm not coming back. Iron Sheik told the story uh, many times about uh, Vern Gagne trying to get the Iron Sheik to break Hulk Hogan's leg. Was it true? Was it not? Who knows? But the story's great. Iron Sheik didn't do it. Iron Sheik was all business. Iron Sheik went to the ring. He got Hogan in the camel clutch only a few minutes into the match, but Hogan powered out of it and in front of a sold-out Madison Square Garden crowd. Beat the Iron Sheik in about five minutes. Held that world title up. And Hulkamania was started. Hulkamania needed the Iron Sheik to get started. And the Iron Sheik would go on. There was there was so much heat. Of course, there would be return matches with the Iron Sheik and Hulk Hogan. But after that is when the, the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter would start to feud. You know, the uh, Sergeant Slaughter had been a villainous drill sergeant in the WWE. But with all the uh, patriotism, that was going on in the United States of America. And, and again, the Iran hostage situation happening, the Iron Sheik as a heel was just was just too good. So the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter went on tour together. And for a lot of people that were fans, not like people who have just gone, you know, and watched documentaries and read the history books and, you know, read old observers and stuff like that, but people who were actually around and going to shows in 1985, Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Sheik is the real rivalry that they remember. The boot camp matches, all of this stuff. I mean, it drew numbers like crazy. Of course, Iron Sheik would then go on to uh, team with Nikolai Volkov. They would win the tag team championship at WrestleMania 1. Years would go on. Now we're in, I think, 87-ish. 
They would try to redo the Sergeant Slaughter Iron Sheik thing with Hacksaw Jim Duggan in the Iron Sheik. But, of course, historically, everything about the Iron Sheik is historic. Historically, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik end up traveling together, which is a no-no. We're still kayfabing it, brother. And uh, there's a little of uh, the green medicine in the car. They get arrested. And while it's a problem, you know, keep in mind the WWE is now marketing to, to children, right? This is not, not that anybody can, you know, weed was, was looked at as a drug in the late 1980s. And with the WWE trying to market to children, you can't have the Ninja Turtles get pulled over with weed in their car. You can't have Lino from the Thundercats traveling with Mamra and there being illicit substances in the car. And WWE knew this. So they said, look, you're both gone. Can't do it. You can't be traveling together. And you certainly can't be traveling together with substances. So they left and, you know, uh, Hacksaw ended up coming back before the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik would come back. He'd leave. He'd come back in 1991. He uh, came back under a different character when uh, Sergeant Slaughter decided it was time to go after the WWE Championship and again do kind of what the Iron Sheik did. And and during a, a highly contentious political climate, play the character that sympathized with the anti-American force, the way the Iron Sheik represented the Ayatollah of Iran. Sergeant Slaughter turned his back on the United States of America and supported uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, during the Gulf War, I mean, it didn't start as a war, then, then it became a war and they just kept going. But most importantly, to this conversation anyway, the Iron Sheik would come back as uh, Colonel Mustafa. There was Sergeant Slaughter, General Adnan, Colonel Mustafa, of course, the Iron Sheik, not in the physical condition that he had been in the past, but you would end up with your main event at SummerSlam, the Triangle of Terror, General Adnan, Colonel Mustafa, Sergeant Slaughter versus Hogan, and the warrior, and then after SummerSlam, Sergeant Slaughter goes back to being a babyface. And what do we do? Of course, we have him feud. Prove it. Prove that you're on America's side. Okay, bring me Colonel Mustafa, and we go back to Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik once again. Uh, the Iron Sheik would have, uh, you know, he'd be pop into WCW here and there. He had a run on the Indies in uh, 1996. He was back in the WWE to manage the Sultan. Uh, you know, short-lived as most of these runs were. His last WWE match would have been WrestleMania 17. The 2001 uh, WrestleMania where they did the gimmick Battle Royal. And whether it was because he truly was the greatest gimmick of all time or his knees were in bad shape and he couldn't take a bump so he couldn't be thrown over the top rope. Whatever the reason was, he won that battle royal, and the Iron Sheik stood strong. There was so much about that character that that people remember. I mean, it wasn't even, it's not like, even if it had just been that he was the guy that Hogan beat to launch Hulkamania, it would have been enough. But everybody, like I said, the slaughter rivalry, the Triangle of Terror stuff, Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik standing in the ring together as Nikolai Volkov sings the national anthem and the Iron Sheik is waving the Iranian flag, the national anthem of Russia, and the Iron Sheik is waving the Iranian flag, telling all the American fans to shut up and spitting on the ground. But 
the Iron Sheik was also the first monster heel, the first supervillain for Hogan to conquer. This is what Hogan would do. Piper would be next, but Piper was kind of a special case, but it was Piper. It was uh, 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 King Kong Bundy. It was Andre. It was Ted DiBiase. It was the big boss man. You know, all of these Sergeant Slaughter. Sid Justice, for God's sake. A lot of it can be traced back to how successful, it was just like, dude, Hogan and the Iron Sheik is money. Run it back, run it back, run it back, run it back. When you go over toys of the 1980s, if you grew up in the 1980s, it was the action figure era. If you were a boy, everybody had Ninja Turtles. Everybody had Thundercats. And even if you didn't watch wrestling as a kid, everybody had a Hulk Hogan, big rubber LJN, and an Iron Sheik. Big rubber LJN. That Iron Sheik, where he's got his he's got his bicep flex going, he's got the handlebar mustache. Everybody had that toy, and it was like the Iron Sheik was just the villain to fight everybody, whether it was in your living room with your toys or whether it was on TV. I think as people get older, they start to realize uh, how much somebody like the Iron Sheik uh, contributes. And so that's why he just he just becomes this more beloved figure. Of course, um, he'd start working with the beloved Megan boys. Love those guys. And they would go like, let's they, their whole thing was trying to keep the legacy of the Iron Sheik alive. And they helped to really push forward, bring the technology in. The tweets of the Iron Sheik that would just become, the, I mean, it's the stuff of legend. Today, the people are still... Passing around Iron Sheik. What's your favorite Iron Sheik tweet? What's your favorite Iron Sheik tweet? Hulk Hogan was trending the day that the Iron Sheik passed. Not because people were reliving Madison Square Garden, but because people were, well, they were saying F the Hulk Hogan based on the Iron Sheik's prolific Twitter account. He'd become a mainstay of shoot interviews, just going nuts on people. Brian Blair. Nobody would have been talking about Brian Blair in the 2000s had it not been for the Sheik going on every shoot interview that he could get to, saying that he wanted to make Brian Blair humble, break his back, and well, you know what the rest of it is. Iron Sheik would go on Howard Stern. Those appearances are iconic. Iron Sheik would go on Opie and Anthony, where I was working at the time. I helped make that happen. Those appearances were iconic. There's a lot to remember this dude for. And uh, I'm just so glad that, I mean, everybody came out of the woodworks to appreciate one of the greatest characters in the history of professional wrestling, the Iron Sheik. God bless Bubba. Hope his family's doing well. Hey guys, I apologize for the interruption, but the weather is just too nice to spend your time indoors cooking. Have you have you thought about dinner at all? Factor's got you covered. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It delivers nutritious meals right to your door. It's the easiest way to stay on top of your health goals. It also saves you a ton of time. Look, I get it. I know the problems, especially with trying to stay healthy. It is so difficult. It is so expensive, and you have no idea when you're going to get the time or how to even make the food that you want to make regardless. 
Factor has you covered. They give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. It's brainless, brainless stuff with over 34 chefs created. dietitian approved options every week. There's always something new to try. They got calorie conscious options, calorie smart meals that come around 550 calories. They have uh, extra boosts of protein. Try the Factor's Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. What if you want something fancy, huh? What if you're looking to impress some people? Well, all you have to do is try Factor's new surf and turf options, like the the Cajun spice, spiced, the Cajun spiced shrimp and salmon. Easy for you to say, even easier for you to prepare. Head to factormeals.com slash notsam50 and use code notsam50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code notsam50 at factormeals.com slash notsam50 to get 50% off your first box. Um, Speaking of legends, by the way, Dark Side of the Ring Magnum TA was great this week. Uh, That's exact. These are the type of, of... stories I love when Dark Side of the Ring tells because number one, it's not all bad news. You know, it has a dark turn in the sense that Magnum TA had the potential to be so much, but one twist of fate stopped everything and really changed wrestling, not just as far as the career of Magnum TA goes, but there was so much I don't even think people realized how much they were putting on the shoulders of Magnum TA being successful, that when he wasn't, it changed the course of Jim Crockett promotions forever. You know, who who knows what WCW would have looked like if Magnum TA had had the opportunity to have his year plus on top. Um, he's a great guy, though. I mean, if you watch it, you you can't not love the dude as he's telling his story. And you also can't not watch the footage that they have in that thing and think to yourself, yeah, this guy could have been a star everywhere. Like, it, I truly believe upon watching that, that Magnum TA would have had a massive run as the NWA world champion, and Vince would have absolutely stolen him. I believe that Magnum TA probably would have been in the SID position. Magnum TA probably would have been the guy that Vince brought in to try to replace Hogan in 1991 if he didn't bring in bring him in before that. But in 1991, when Hogan was slowing down and he was going to go do movies, Vince was looking for the new Hogan. He thought Sid was going to be it. I wholeheartedly believe that by 1991, you would have had Magnum TA in the WWE, which would have been really interesting because there's no doubt like that in 1987, 1988, we would have gone on, gone on a run of Magnum TA Ric Flair matches. Would that have repeated in WWE in 91, 92? Who knows? And who knows what Magnum TA's name would have been in WWE? Well, speaking of WWE and speaking of, of champions and history, history uh, was altered uh, once again and then once again more. As far as the WWE title situation, now it's pretty clear. And I would imagine that this was the plan after WrestleMania. That it was like, okay, we're going to go through WrestleMania and then we're going to start cleaning up the title situation. 
This is clearly not something that they're figuring out as they go. Like, I think there is a method to the madness. I think that that the reason that there was no king and queen of the ring this year is because they were going to do a tournament for the world heavyweight championship. So they're not going to do three tournaments. Like, what do we, it would be too much, too much. So they're also not going to do everything simultaneously, right? Let's, let's, if we're introducing a new title, let's give that new title all of the energy that we can give it. And they did that, right? Six weeks or whatever it was. I think that's from the time it was announced to the time it was actually crowned. Four to six weeks anyway. Then it was like, okay, then give Roman his night where we take the unit, enough of the confusion, take these two titles, make them one belt. Here's Roman, the new undisputed WWE Universal Champion. Then the next week on SmackDown, and you know, there's different, there's levels to this. Triple H is presenting Roman Reigns with the title. Adam Pierce is presenting Asuka with the title. A lot of people were asking these questions for months now, a couple of months anyway. Why is the Raw champion on SmackDown? Why is the SmackDown champion on Raw as far as the women go? Now, look, I mean, I said from the beginning, like I, I would imagine that there is a, a play here, right? They're they're not lost, right? They, they wouldn't. They're the ones who drafted them, so it's not like they're like, oh man, how did we get here? What do we do now? Uh, but honestly, I mean, when they would just swap the titles, there was criticism of that too. When they would just have the champions hand the title to the other champion and 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 da da da, there were there was criticism of that too. So I think that the idea of having championships that are not brand specific is probably a very good thing. When the Intercontinental Champion and the United States Champion switch brands, there was no confusion. It was like, okay, so the one title's being defended on the other show now. I think that's probably the best part of this title switch is that now that the Raw title on SmackDown has become the WWE Women's Championship, that that title can now be drafted back and forth. And it doesn't really matter. The lineage doesn't change. Nobody's got to swap it. It's not, if it gets drafted to the other brand, it's drafted on the other brand. It is what it is. Um, I would imagine that Rhea Ripley's title is next. That'll probably happen on Raw this week. And then I wouldn't be surprised to see the tag team champions, uh, that title get unified. And I say this because I'm looking at what they're doing with the women's tag team championship. It was announced on SmackDown that uh, Ronda and Shayna Baszler are going to compete in a couple of weeks against Alba Fire and Isla Dawn to merge the tag team championship. So the NXT in my mind, the NXT Tag Team Championship will be, as we discussed last week, absorbed by the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship. Hopefully, this will make the title mean more. And hopefully, this means that that title will now be able to go across all three brands. Because they're expressly merging those titles, I would imagine that the next move because why split the tag team championship? I don't think that the WWE's tag team situation is not like where they have this plethora of tag teams, right? I, I, I think that the tag title is probably much stronger with traveling champions. And again, 
I think it lends itself to creating interesting scenarios on NXT, right? I think that that they're clearly trying to get more eyeballs on NXT. I think that the whole free agent was created so that eyeballs would go to NXT. At first, I think a lot of us, when we saw that free agents were being declared in the draft, we just assumed that WWE doesn't know what to do with these guys, which is probably the reason that it would have been a few years ago. But now, I think that the plan from the beginning was to go like, okay, these are the people that will cycle through NXT. We have to have a roster, a small roster of people that we can put on NXT, take out this person will go to NXT. Uh, with Corbin and Carmelo having a clearly a big rivalry in NXT to the point where they actually had Carmelo show up in the crowd on SmackDown. Like that's pretty big that a NXT storyline is even being mentioned on SmackDown is a thing that before would not have happened. Now, not only is it being mentioned, but that story continues to be told. NXT is actually being treated once again like it's a third brand. And maybe that's because Battleground was such a good show that they're going, okay, we need to work to get eyeballs on this product. And if that is the case, that's a really great thing. I think that that you know, getting a tag team like Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens on NXT, even if it's just for one premium live event, would be huge for him. Like what the, I mean, having the New Day go over there and be the tag team champions was great. Now, I don't know that they'll need to travel throughout all three brands since NXT has their tag team championship, but who knows? Maybe that'll get merged at some point. I don't know. I don't think that that's necessarily necessary, but we'll see. Um, the only hiccup, I think, in the... Uh, unification, and then of course, of course, when we're talking about NXT, Braun Breaker calling out Seth Rollins at the end of NXT this week. Now, that doesn't make the most sense in the world because WWE specifically said Seth's title, the World Heavyweight Championship, will be exclusive to Monday Night Raw. This is why I didn't like that the SmackDown guys were competing for it. They said this in the promo. This is going to be exclusive to Raw. So the idea that Braun Breaker is challenging Seth Rollins to come to NXT to defend the title, it's almost like it's great for Braun Breaker. It's great for NXT. I'll be watching. It's going to be cool. But we are having to kind of men in black ourselves and forget that memory of the fact that this title is supposedly exclusive to Raw. Unless, I guess, Seth shows up, answers Braun Breaker's challenge, and tells him he's got to come to Raw. And then we see Braun versus Seth on Raw. But how did Braun get to Raw if he's NXT? We'll see. Maybe it'll make sense, and maybe it won't. The women's championship stuff and Roman's championship, Asuka and Roman's championships, make sense in the in the idea that Roman's two belts should be showcased as one title. I think it diminishes confusion. And Asuka's title should not be a Raw exclusive championship if she's on SmackDown. Makes sense. People are, you know, the real hardcore fans, they're getting a little... They're finding it questionable at the very least that <laughs> both those titles say undisputed on them. Now, Asuka's title has not been called the Undisputed Championship. Asuka's title was specifically called the WWE Women's Championship. When it was presented to her, uh, you know, that's been the lingo for it. However, all you have to do is go to WWE shop, see the replicas already there, and see that in the letters under the big WWE logo, it says Undisputed Champion. 
Roman Reigns title, the undisputed WWE Universal Championship, it says undisputed champion on it. It is hard for a lot of people who understand the English language to call a title undisputed when there are multiple champions, right? Like, like if there's a world heavyweight champion and an undisputed champion, you're like, well, I think the world heavyweight champion might be disputing that title. I get it. Look, from a guy who doesn't like seeing the TBS title defended on TNT or the TNT title defended on TBS, if there's dispute over a title, I don't like it being called undisputed. I can get past it as I can get past the TBS TNT title. I go like this. Why is that title being defended here? Oh, well, and then I watch the match. It's usually a pretty good match, right? I go, why are they defending the TBS title on pay-per-view? Oh, my God. Chris Statlander's back. This is amazing. We go forward. It's kind of where I'm at with the uh, undisputed markings on the two titles. It just feels like uh, I'm sure there's just somebody that is is that loves the word undisputed. And I don't blame them. It's a great word. It's not 100% accurate. But I am glad that it's a step in the right direction, right? It's like we're almost there. We're almost there. Speaking of getting there, I mean, and women, right? You got a big, shiny, gold WWE Women's Championship that Asuka's holding. Charlotte comes back on SmackDown. She says she's ready for a title. The memes go crazy because everybody realizes that every time there's a title introduced, Charlotte goes, I would like that, please. Charlotte hits them right back with some memes. I love it. Bianca Belair is on Twitter tweeting about how uh, upset she is that Charlotte is just walking into a rematch when she was trying to do the right thing. Maybe hints of a Bianca Belair turn. I don't know. Look, problem is, if Bianca Belair turns and is mad at Charlotte and it leads to Charlotte versus Bianca Belair, people are not going to cheer Charlotte over Bianca Belair. I love Charlotte. It's just not happening. So... Unless you tell a great story. So I'm interested to see the storytelling. But when we talk about the women's division, we really should be talking about the potential future of that women's division and what we could see. Maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse on this one. But over the weekend at UFC 289, Amanda Nunes, who is... I mean, if you've never seen Amanda Nunes fight in the UFC, because I know not everybody that listens to this podcast is going to watch UFC. Watch Amanda Nunes fight. A lot of them don't even take that long. She is so incredible to watch. Like, she's like like Roman Reigns to an extent, right? Where there are times where you'll watch a, a Roman Reigns match and you'll go oh, there's this match and then there's everybody else. Amanda Nunes, in a very real way, steps into that octagon and it's like, she's making the most skilled competitors look outclassed, like they don't belong. And there's nobody that's even coming close to doing that to Amanda. At UFC 289, she defended her title. She walked in. She dominated, she grabbed the microphone and announced her retirement. She put down, as she was the holder 
of the Bantam and Featherweight Championships in the UFC. It was almost like she was saying, nobody's coming close. And I don't want to fight until people do come close. So I believe she's 35, I want to say. She put down the Featherweight and the Bantam Championship titles and put her gloves down and retired from the UFC. An amazing moment from an absolutely incredible and amazing champion and athlete. Question is, in terms of UFC, does she stay retired? And I hope that she does. Because I really want her to be a professional wrestler. This woman is not only so dominant in the ring, but she is an absolutely electric person. There is something so endearing about her. Not only when you watch her fight, do you find yourself just rooting for her, but when you watch her talk, you're like, yup, that's my fighter. That's my person. Yeah, I'm going to war for this person. Yup. I, 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 I think that, that she would instantly, and they might even try to bring her in as a heel, but if she came in as a baby face, uh, I think that she could do similar things in the WWE that she did in UFC. I think Amanda Nunes could be one of the biggest female stars that the WWE ever had. Ronda Rousey made headlines as somebody who dominated that sport and was so good and so electric of a person. The be Ronda Rousey was the one. Dana White said at one point that he would never have female fighters in the UFC. I believe Ronda Rousey is the one that changed that. Ronda Rousey was division defining. Ronda Rousey paved the way for everybody. But people after Ronda Rousey continued to get better. That's what happens. The sport evolves. You know, George St. Pierre could be the greatest of all time, but a lot of people would argue that John Jones is now the greatest of all time. And after John Jones, there'll be somebody else. Israel Adesanya is walking up here with people going, I don't know who in his weight class has ever been better than him. When you've got a sport as young as mixed martial arts, people keep getting better and better and better. And Amanda Nunes is one of those people, but she has set such a high watermark that I don't know how long it's going to be before somebody walks up and you can definitively say they're better than she is or was. And I think that she can take that credibility and her ability to put on a show and work in high-pressure situations and be a major impact player in the WWE. I mean, I think you could easily, if you can get her signed to a contract, then I would say spend the rest of this year building up Shayna and Ronda as a tag team. Get the, one of the championships on Ronda Rousey by the year's end and have Amanda Nunes debut in the Royal Rumble and win the thing. I think you can headline one night of WrestleMania with Amanda Nunes versus Ronda Rousey. And then I think you can go on to having Amanda Nunes versus Charlotte, Amanda Nunes versus Bianca Belair, versus Becky Lynch. There's, uh, there, there's just, to me, so much 
meat on the bone because I don't know, man, there's just something about her that not only does she have all this credibility and ability, I, she can tell stories, I think. Well, we won't know until she steps in a ring. But I, I feel her emotions in the world of mixed martial arts. I, when she's talking, when she's expressing, I get the story that's being told. It's a real story. When you get into the world of WWE and you can now specifically map out these stories that you're telling, I think she'd be a beast, man. I hope it happens. I really, really hope it happens. Um, I also hope that Forbidden Door is as good as it appears that it's going to be, right? So we have confirmed Brian Danielson versus Okada, right? That's happening at Forbidden Door. We got Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega. You remember last year, uh, AW Forbidden Door was a snake bit show. Uh, there were a lot of injuries piling up. A lot of stuff was going on. And I think a lot of what was planned for that Forbidden Door show wasn't able to get pulled off. And then after Forbidden Door, it was all out. And things kind of spiraled, right? And it put AEW in a place that maybe is not as strong as it was going into last summer. So this summer, it's like, okay, now it's time to make good. And already, if you're doing Danielson versus Okada, and you're doing Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega for the IWGP United States Championship, this is one of those shows that while, yes, you're not going to go in with a ton of stories that are being told week after week on Dynamite and in a couple weeks, a week and collision, but these are going to be matches. The way people used to, still do to an extent, but really the way people used to talk about Wrestle Kingdom matches, right? The way people talked about Kenny Omega and Okada, the way people talked about the Jericho stuff, the way the stuff that was happening at Wrestle Kingdom was shifting perspective all over the place, you know? I, I, I think it was some of those matches that led to AEW becoming a thing at all. I think that that's the, that's the goal that fans have, right? when they turn on uh, 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 Forbidden Door, that they want to see this fantasy show that they never thought they could see anything this good. And here we are. Now, it's really weird. Like, wrestling uh, news sites, are they were reporting this week that CM Punk versus Kenta is being internally discussed for Forbidden Door. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, they're tweeting. Kenta's tweeting about it. Like, what do you, what do you mean internally discussed? What do you mean, like, like you've like, like, okay, well, we've got it. We've got somebody on the inside, and they're telling us. I saw the Kenta tweets. Kenta's talking about CM Punk on Twitter. Where is a good spot that CM Punk and Kenta could settle this? I don't know. Forbidden door. Of course, Kenta and CM Punk uh, have a, a long-standing, unsaid. I don't know if you call it a rivalry. But it's been a fantasy match for a long time because a lot of it is because of the go to sleep, you know? CM Punk debuts the go to sleep. This is Kenta's move. And he credited Kenta with it. There are interviews where he's credited Kenta with it. But regardless, it was Kenta's move. CM Punk started to do it. As soon as that happened, it was like, okay, this is the match that we want to see. I'll never forget when uh, NXT did their big WrestleMania weekend show. The first time NXT ran WrestleMania weekend. It was not on 
a premium live event. It was not on pay-per-view. It was the year before the, uh, yeah, it would have probably been the March before the August Barclays Center show, I want to say. Um, it was not even televised. It was in uh, San Jose before WrestleMania push play, WrestleMania 31. Uh, and they drew like 5,000 people. I think Charlotte and Sasha Banks might have main evented. And I think that that show really did change the course for NXT. But one of the big things that happened at that show was Hideo Itami at the time, Kenta, actually did the go to sleep in a WWE ring. And the crowd went nuts for it. That was eight years ago. And the crowd went nuts for it. Uh, the idea that in 2023, we could actually see the Punk versus Kenta match. Uh, I mean, come on, huge. I, you know, I don't think we're gonna get the official announcement right away because CM Punk hasn't returned yet. It's official that he is returning. But if we start piling up, he's going to return. He's going to have this match on collision. He's going to be at the pay-per-view. It's like, we're, let's let's just get to that first promo. And, and honestly, that was my thought when they announced uh, the main event for the first collision show. Now, I don't know if this is uh, in an effort to move tickets or if it's in an effort to get a TV rating or both or just what they want to do creatively. I don't know. Um, I do know that if you look at like the WrestleTicks Twitter account, CM Punk being confirmed for the first episode of Collision uh, in Chicago has moved tickets for that show. It moved a bunch of tickets right away. They announced this week that the first episode of Collision is going to be CM Punk and FTR versus Jay White, Juice Robinson, and Samoa Joe, which is a huge match. Who knows where it's going to lead to, right? I mean... Uh, are we going towards CM Punk versus Jay White? Are we going towards CM Punk versus Samoa Joe? Are we? I, if it were me, I would definitely start using Samoa Joe a bunch on AEW TV as the trailer just dropped for the Twisted Metal series that's coming to Peacock, and Samoa Joe is in it. A lot of wrestling fans freaking out, getting real happy for Samoa Joe. He looks awesome in it. So it would be a good time to capitalize on Samoa Joe being your guy. I think people would love to see a CM Punk versus Samoa Joe story but again this is getting back to stories right i i almost feel like don't announce a match like i i don't think fans are most hungry right now today as we speak i don't think the things fans are most hungry for is seeing cm punk wrestle again i think today as we speak they will be but today, the thing fans are most hungry for is to see CM Punk speak into a microphone. CM Punk's greatest moment in Ring of Honor was when he cut the promo after he retained the Ring of Honor World Championship. As many great matches as CM Punk had in Ring of Honor, the number one CM Punk Ring of Honor moment is him cutting the promo and saying the 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 whatever the 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 most devious thing the devil ever did was make you forget that he existed or something like that. When he announced that he was going to take the Ring of Honor title and he was going to go to WWE with it, it's the best Ring of Honor CM Punk moment. 
He's got great matches there. So many. That is the number one moment. CM Punk has so many great WWE matches. Money in the Bank 2011, CM Punk versus John Cena is in my top 10 matches of all time. His best WWE moment is the pipe bomb promo. Period. End of discussion. CM Punk had great matches in AEW. The dog collar match with MJF. The Mox match at the end. You know, tons of them. His best AEW moment was probably his return. It might have been one of the promos with MJF, but it was probably his first promo back, his return. Fans, I believe, will be buying a ticket to Collision to hear what CM Punk has to say. I think that the best thing you can do to advertise that show is say, CM Punk returns and he will have a live mic in his hand. That, to me, is the sell. Now, if you want to do the match, I got no problem with that. If you want to have, it's a, Collision's a two-hour show. If you want to have CM Punk come out and do his promo, and then it leads to a six-man tag at the end of the night so we can get on track immediately for CM Punk to not be bogged down by the past and to move forward, right? Because everybody's going to want to know about the all-out stuff. If we get that out of the way and then go straight to Jay White, Samoa Joe, et cetera, Juice Robinson, FTR, that's fine. I don't mind him having a match his first night back. But I think for me, I wish it was just advertised as CM Punk will have a live microphone in his hand. That to me is the sell. All right, I think we're going to wait. I, I, I think we're going to wait till next week to go over uh the Money in the Bank stuff, because we've got some question marks as to who else is going to be in this match. I think both the men's and the women's, yes, have five people announced and one yet to be announced. Um, I can already kind of map out where I would go with the women's match. I'm not quite there with the men's match yet. So we'll wait till next week. We'll break down the Money in the Bank matches. Um, shout out to The Bloodline for continuing on a wonderful story. Jay Uso accidentally kicking Jimmy Uso, leaving SmackDown. We're still not sure what side Jay Uso is on. How, when will we find out? Tune in next week now. Let's get to, oh, 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 oh. Don't let me leave you here. Let's not get to emails yet because, because I'll tell you what I love, what I absolutely love and what motivated me, you know, I put out a, a clip from last week's show on social media. And I always get flack for my clips. I don't care. I'm glad when I get flack for my clips. As long as I get eyeballs, it doesn't matter. But it was about WWE being hot, right? And the reason that I put out that clip is because I was watching the Dominic Mysterio, Cody Rhodes face-off. Can you imagine two years ago can you imagine a year and a half ago when Cody returned saying, yeah, and they're going to do a pay-per-view where it's Dominic versus Cody? You'd be like, what are you talking about? That sounds awful. Now, it was incredible watching those two together. It was awesome. I think it's pretty obvious that we're not going to get the Brock Lesnar, the third Brock Lesnar-Cody match will not be at Money in the Bank. If I had to guess, I would guess SummerSlam. 
Rumors are going wild that it could be a bull rope match. Uh, I think that would be great. Nice tip of the hat to Dusty Rhodes. But it feels to me, watching Raw, like we're getting Cody Rhodes versus Dominic at Money in the Bank. A lot of people were saying that they want Dominic to get that briefcase. I don't think Dominic's going to be in the ladder match. I think we're getting Cody Rhodes versus Dominic Mysterio at Money in the Bank as a singles match. And I've got to tell you, I am here for it. That sounds great. The fact that you've got a good guy like Cody Rhodes getting cheered in every arena that he goes to, and you've got a bad guy like Dominic Mysterio getting booed so loudly in every arena that he goes to that he can't get a word out? Did you hear that crowd react when Cody goes, I know Rey Mysterio's not perfect. I know he's made his mistakes. I'm looking at one of them. Oh! It was like that meme and that guy just looking confident and everybody falling down around him. Got him! Cody pulled a Papa Doc on him by shouting out his own tattoo. Your prison tattoos are worse than mine. Oh! Dominic calling Cody a deadbeat dad. Just like my dad, you're a deadbeat dad. You got a kid, you should be at home with your family. Oh, every bit of it was great. Every bit of it. Cody's now gonna not only have to deal with Dominic, but have to deal with Rhea too. If you've got to figure out something to do with Cody from now until SummerSlam, if you've got a pay-per-view where you're not gonna pay off the Brock thing yet, but you're still gonna use Cody, this is the perfect little story to sneak in there. Cody versus Dominic all day. I'm here for it all day. Dominic will probably lose to Cody Rhodes and will lose absolutely nothing. All that will happen is that as a villain, Dominic Mysterio will be in one of the top matches of this pay-per-view. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable time to be Dominic Mysterio. And in this role that he's in, every time he's gotten up to bat, he's knocked it out of the park. Ray versus Dom was one of the best matches at WrestleMania, and it was a good WrestleMania. People actually want to see Cody Rhodes versus Dominic Mysterio. That is how you know things are going well in Stamford, Connecticut. All right, let's get to these emails, okay? You want to email Not Sam Wrestling? Send us an email, notsamwrestling at gmail.com, notsamwrestling at gmail.com. Uh, uh, I know a bunch of you guys got uh, your Not Sam Wrestling merch that you picked up during the merch drop. Uh, I'm glad that you're loving them. Let's go to Kyle, who emailed notsamwrestling at gmail.com. Kyle says, here's a short email for you. What are your thoughts on J.D. McDonough joining the Judgment Day? Thanks. I think the Judgment Day, I love J.D. McDonough, first of all. Huge J.D. McDonough fan. I think the crazier, the better. The, The quieter, the better. The more dangerous, the better. Love J.D. McDonough. I think the Judgment Day is delicate. I think you don't want to mess with the Judgment Day too much, right? I think the the, the Judgment Day with Dom and Rhea, I think the fact that you've got uh, Priest getting into a position where he's being looked at as a main event guy, I... uh, I don't think you want to mess with the Judgment Day right now. If you are going to mess with them, I, it's not a bad fit. I just don't know if you want to mess with them. Uh, speaking of the Judgment Day, Adam writes in, hey, I started listening to the podcast Post-Mania, and I've been hooked ever since. That's what's up, dude. I don't know what took me so long. Well, don't worry about it. My question is simple. What are your thoughts on Finn Balor? I'm a huge fan and even bigger fan of him as a heel. 
Do you ever see him as a main eventer and somebody that could one day win the heavyweight title and carry a brand? Yeah, I think he's great. I think I think Finn Balor is 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 awesome. I'm a huge Finn Balor fan, and I love. I, I think that Finn Balor has found a real nice niche for himself at the moment. I think that he doesn't need to hold a world title right now, but he feels like he is really embracing being this this villain character in the Judgment Day. Again, it goes back to me saying you don't want to mess with the Judgment Day right now. Everything's running on all cylinders. Dom and Rhea, one of the hottest acts in the company. Damian Priest, it, we've just found a new main event star. And Finn Balor is doing some of the best work that he's done in years. So if it ain't broke, Let's go to Joshua, who says, two quick questions. First, any special plans for episode 500? We're 49 away from that, my friend. About a year. Okay, so going into next summer, maybe we'll do a live show or something. I should probably get a big guest, though. Hmm. I'll start thinking about that for you. Second, question about The Undertaker. Uh, why do you think his match with Edge at WrestleMania 24 is not brought up when talking about his incredible string of matches during this time frame? His matches with Sean and Hunter are considered his best work, yet the man himself has spoken about how much he enjoyed working with Edge. I think his match with Edge is incredible. I think it's just a matter of, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, The Undertaker went on a streak from WrestleMania 24, 24 with Edge, 25 with Sean, 26 with Sean, 27 with Hunter, 28 with Hunter, 29 with Punk. And then 30 with Brock. The last seven, and you know, the Brock matches, of course. But those six, those final six wins are all great matches, right? I think that the reason the Edge match just doesn't get brought up, and it should, you're right. It's one of my favorite Undertaker matches at WrestleMania. But you've got to understand, that series of matches with Sean and Hunter are four of the best WrestleMania matches that have ever existed. The Sean-Undertaker matches are two of the best wrestling matches that have ever existed. So I think it's just a matter of it, it, it's too high a bar to reach. If you can wipe out those four, then yeah, Undertaker versus Edge is probably the best one. I'd have to, you know, go back and really look at all the other ones, but that's probably the best one. But man, when The Undertaker is excelling at WrestleMania, he's excelling. Uh, Matt, I love watching Caden and Katana. Of course, Caden Carter and Katana Chance on NXT. Great tag team. I was nervous when they got drafted, worried they'd be a jobber tag team. But then I saw their match with Shane and Ronda on Raw. Simply awesome. Would love to hear your thoughts. I think they were great. I think that 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 uh, WWE saw their value in NXT. I think that they're being portrayed as this kind of young party team. I think that, that they've still got a little bit of identity to find on the main roster. But I loved that they were shown having offense. Uh, it felt like that was a lot of pressure to put on them. They did not buckle at all. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's about maybe they need to have their party cannons back or something like that. But for two people that came on Raw, with odds are most of the audience not knowing who they are and let, made that kind of impression, on an episode of Raw that everybody was like, yo, this is an incredible episode of Raw. Didn't they follow Kevin Owens and Gunther? I think they might have. That's crazy. And they still did well? No, I think I think it's I think it's looking really good for them. Uh Bradley, I'm irked. Can you explain how in the world they call the new women's championship undisputed? Yeah, we talked about that. We talked about that, Brad. 
Manda, let's say Jey Uso is the one to dethrone Roman. It's not going to happen. We still want Cody to finish the story eventually. So the question is, who is the heel that takes the belt off Jey Uso so Cody can eventually uh, finish the story? Okay, first of all, not going to happen. Second of all, if Cody took the title off somebody that wasn't Roman, it would not be special the way it would be for Roman. People would always remember, yeah, but you couldn't beat Roman. Um, yeah, I don't think Jey Uso is going to take the title off Roman because I think that Jey, post taking the title off Roman, would have a tough time. Um, if that scenario had to happen, if they said, damn it, Sam, this is what we're doing, then I'd go, okay. Um, I'd probably have Gunther then take the title off Jey Uso. Because you need Cody to have to fight somebody indestructible. So I'd probably have Gunther take the title off Jey Uso, never lose the Intercontinental title. I'd have him vacate the Intercontinental title the way the Ultimate Warrior did. And then Cody has to beat Gunther to finish the story, if I had to. Uh, let's see. Matt, I love you. I'm sorry. Your title lineage thesis doesn't make any sense. Okay. All right. All right. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm already on edge, but I'm listening. If the Triple H world title bestowed by Eric Bischoff picks up the WCW lineage without Lesnar losing, right, then the Rollins was does the same thing without Reigns losing vis-a-vis -vis the Orton unification. The Bischoff speech and the Triple H speech introducing those two titles are almost identical. They have to be the same, Either the Triple H 02 was also brand new or the Rollins title splits off the resumes of the lineage. Okay. I do not see how they could be any different. You're absolutely correct in your analysis. The WWE title subsuming uh, lineages and lineages being split off and picked up again. You are correct that no one between Jericho and Triple H, but you got to be consistent with the 02 and the 23 title introductions. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but what I am saying is that as I've said, the Bible, <laughs> I'm not saying this. What I am saying is what I've said. The Bible of WWE is what's on television. The story that we're told on television is the Bible. Not one week of television, but overall. Maybe in the beginning, the O2 World Heavyweight title was just introduced as the new title. But number one, it was the same physical belt as basically as the big gold. And number two, it was absolutely promoted, discussed, advertised as having that previous lineage. There were people who won that heavyweight title that were compared to other people who won the world heavyweight title and it didn't start in 02. Now, at some point, could they decide to add that lineage to the 2023 world title? Absolutely, but they haven't done it yet. All that's been said on television as of today, this recording, is that the world heavyweight title of today is a new title. In 02, they absolutely said that it is not. They compared it to previous world heavyweight champions. So don't come at me with that kind of attitude, man. Don't come at me with that kind of energy. As if I'm not thinking about this stuff. Come on. Nicholas... Uh, first, I want to thank you for everything you do about wrestling. You're awesome. Don't change a bit. I wasn't even, I want you to know, Nicholas, in case there's anyone wondering, I wasn't even 
considering changing a bit. At no point was that something that occurred to me that it could be a good idea, but I appreciate you doubling down on that for me. About Roman Reigns, I think they won't take the title off him until they manage to make the match with The Rock happen. What do you think? Uh, I'm not saying they want Dwayne to win the title. They just want to make this match as big as possible. Um, no, I don't. I, I think that they would like for that to happen, right? I think that that it is a bigger match with the title because if there is no title and Roman has already been defeated, then The Rock can beat Roman. I think a lot of people would assume that The Rock was going to beat Roman. But if the title is on Roman and he has yet to be defeated... Well, now you're sitting there wondering, oh my God, are they going to have Roman beat The Rock? So I think because of that, as well as other factors, the title does make the match bigger. That said, unless they have some kind of concrete information, look, dude, I can't work this year at WrestleMania, but I can work at SummerSlam, or I can work, I, I will put it down in a contract right now. I can't work at WrestleMania this year. I can work at WrestleMania next year. If you will put that in writing for me, we will keep the world title on Roman Reigns for another year so we can have that title match. I buy that. But if they don't have it confirmed, they're not just going to hold their product hostage hoping that the rock match happens. At this point, no. Unless they have that confirmed, I don't buy it. Not one bit. Uh... This, uh, John says, uh, do you see John Cena coming back for SummerSlam to face Logan Paul? And do you think AJ Styles fights Roman Reigns for his title? Not at SummerSlam. I think AJ versus Roman is would be a great match. But I think at SummerSlam, you're looking at Jey Uso versus Roman. Um, and will John Cena come back to face Logan Paul? Uh, possibly. Possibly. You know, we haven't heard from John Cena. You know how passionate he is about wrestling. You, I'm sure, watched the interview that I did with him. It's on YouTube.com slash NotSameWrestling. So, uh, Salvatore. Sal says, do you think WWE missed an opportunity to have a premium live event themed around the bloodline? Sort of like how we got In Your House DX or Rock Bottom. Also, do you think the bloodline gets any members? I'm assuming you mean new members. No, I don't think WWE needed a pay-per-view called the bloodline. And no, well, I mean, the bloodline could get new members, but... If you put new members in the bloodline at this point, then you're kind of getting into NWO, Hollywood, NWO, Wolfpack territory. You know, it'd be one thing if Jacob Fatu were coming over or something like that. Uh, but if the Usos are out, to replace them, you know, doesn't work for me, brother. Not, not you could maybe convince me of it, but no. Uh Let's see. Michael says, huge fan of your show. You're by far the best wrestling analyst I've ever heard. You've probably heard a lot of them too. So have you ever considered doing an episode analyzing the greatest theme songs slash entrances from both WWF slash E? For example, I've been hit with a heavy nostalgia for Stone Cold's Disturbed version. Yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, if you go back in the archives and I would not, I would be absolutely willing to do it again. Um, I believe that one of the things that makes Triple H so unique is that if you play Triple H's theme songs in chronological order, you have a complete narrative of the character. If you play his first theme song, it's the Greenwich Blue Blood. You know exactly who the character is. It goes into Mozart. You're like, oh, this is a little bit more aggressive. Like, okay, he's, he's finding himself. 
And then it just keeps moving. You go into DX. You go into my time. You go into the game. You go into, uh, you know, all the Motorhead stuff. The game is Motorhead, but you know what I'm saying. King of Kings, you know. If you go through song by song, you've got his, chronologically, you've got the entire narrative of the character, which has never been done before. I don't think. Uh... Mark, what's your name? Mark says, uh, what's your fantasy Legends House season two lineup? He's got Undertaker, Shane Helms, Jonathan Coachman, Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, Mick Foley, Rob Van Dam, and Scott Steiner. I don't know how Jonathan Coachman got put in that house. Um, um, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Uh, fantasy for Legends House is... Bret Hart, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Nash. How many do we have to do? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Bret Hart, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Nash, uh, Randy Orton, Undertaker, because he'd be like the guy who's like breaking up the fights and stuff. Randy Orton would be so great in there, too. Uh, Bob Orton for a little father-son dynamic. Mm. And then, let's see. I'll go with you on Mick Foley and Stacey Keebler. Just to mix things up a bit. Oof. I just thought of that off the top of my head. That's a good one, too. They might bring back, if, if WWE hears this podcast, and they will, they might bring back. If Legends House comes back and that lineup looks anything similar, understand. I just did that just now. That's just extra. Like, that of everything I do, that's just extra. Dean, what do you think of Baron Corbin on NXT? I think it's great. Do you think he should have an extended run and even win the title? Yeah, I, I don't like that he, I don't like that the guys in NXT lost in Money in the Bank qualifying matches this week. I'm like, well, why don't even have them in qualifying matches then? Uh, I think they got to change Baron Corbin's music. It's insane. They have to change that music. But other than that, I think it's great. I love where he's going with it. I hope he wins the title. I hope he takes the whole thing over. Yeah, I'm a fan. Uh, all right, I'm skipping that one. It's a little long. Skipping that one. Last one. Uh, hi, Sam. This is from Mike in London. Hope you're well. Congrats on hitting 450. Appreciate you. My question to you is, are there any superstars past or present who you wish had been involved in the creative process or would you have made any changes to that superstar's eventual look? Well, I don't know about... That's two weird questions. The first question is better. Um, you know, it's interesting because you never know what wrestlers are going to work on creative and what wrestlers aren't going to work on creative. Um... You know, I, I think I, I love, I, I would love it if like from the people that I've spoken to and done interviews with that really think about wrestling, I would love a creative committee that was Triple H, Shawn Michaels, John Cena, and Steve Austin. If I could have a creative committee made up of four superstars, 
That's what it would be. Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Cena, and Austin. Just because all their brains are just still wired to be thinking about wrestling all the time. And every time you talk to any of those four guys, three of whom I've interviewed, I've, I mean, I guess I've interviewed Triple H too, but a real like sit down. I think I'm due for another one with Austin to tell you the truth. But like, just go back to the Sean and Cena interviews that I just did in, you know, within the last year. You'll see what I see. It's an amazing thing. You're amazing people for tuning in. I appreciate you. If you're not subscribed already to the YouTube channel, Not Sam Wrestling, if you're watching on YouTube, hit like, hit subscribe, leave a comment. Do the whole deal. I appreciate you guys that are watching on YouTube every single week. If you're listening on Apple, make sure you leave a rating. Make sure you leave a review. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure you leave a rating. And wherever you're listening, you might as well click the YouTube video too. It's just good, right? It's good. Put good into the world. And we'll see you next week here on Not Sam Wrestling.